HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Garden Cult, garden design and coaching. For a 15% discount on virtual garden consultations and coaching sessions, use code HRN15. Learn more at gardencult.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're celebrating the food culture of South Carolina with its chef ambassadors. I'm super excited that it's soft shell crab season. <laughs> Those little suckers are delicious. People think, oh, tomato is a tomato. No, there is a, a good tomato and a bad tomato. So when they come to, to Hampton or even, you know, even in South Carolina, you can really find a incredible ingredient. We started getting lettuce from Micro Leon Farms in Conway. He's it's a, a super sweet family that runs that little farm. Tune in to Meet and 3, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. It's Tuesday, April 27th, 2021 and we're recording remotely. We'll be talking about uh, the Craft Brewers Whiskey Project uh, with three very interesting guests. So let's go around the room and introduce ourselves. Uh, first, Chris. Sure, this is Chris Weld, founder of Berkshire Mountain Distillers in beautiful Sheffield, Massachusetts. All right, Jack. Hi, I'm Jack Hendler. I'm one of the co-founders of Jack's Abbey Craft Lagers and Springdale Beer in Framingham, Massachusetts. Great, and Rich. Hey, I'm Rich Eyring, uh, senior brewer at Harpoon Brewery. Okay, so an intro. This is a very cool project. Uh, a few months ago, uh, Angela reached out to me about the Craft Brewers Whiskey Project. And no one really knows this, but I'm a huge fan of distilled beers. And going back to the folks from the United Importers, I've had many of the Schlenkele in Uriga, the, the German distilled beers, as well as some from Japan, the Hitachino uh, distilled beers. So... I think it's cool. So we're going to talk a little more about it. And um, let's start with Chris. So, Chris, um, you're at Berkshire Mountain Distillers. I've had your Berkshire bourbon and your New England corn whiskey. I'm a big fan of what you do. Um, Let's jump into where this project came from and why distilled beer. I think your quote was, it's beer turned whiskeys. Yeah. So... You know, for us, we're, we're a small brewer, a small distillery, um, which allows us to be pretty nimble. And, you know, there are a bunch of commercial distilleries that have made over a century's time, maybe one or two whiskeys. And for me, um, A, I love craft beer. I love beer in general. And um, I think that each beer presents an opportunity to make a unique whiskey from it. Um and I like to collaborate with these folks. It's a great group of brewers that we got going here on this project. And uh, I've had some experience distilling beer before, but nothing at this scale. And roughly, I don't know, must be about six years ago, decided to sort of tackle this and um, get a big group of brewers together, uh, pick some select beers from those brewers, one from each brewer, and distill it into a whiskey. And uh, A, it's a lot of fun, but also it allows us to put out 12 new whiskeys that are all wildly different in a year's time, which is a pretty unique thing to be able to do. 
So that, it's quite a commitment, isn't it? I mean, you started this in 2016, and now it's 2021, and you're just releasing them. It's a it's a huge commitment. It's a time sink. It's a um, it's a financial commitment. Uh, you know, my analogy is analogy is sort of like owning a restaurant where you have to pay your staff and buy the goods and make the meals and put it away for five years before you um, get to sell it. But uh, which is hard for us small distillers that are fairly young. Um, but it's amazing. It's a really wonderful journey to be able to try these whiskeys throughout the years and, and watch them change. And for me, we sort of hit a sweet spot in our whiskeys, uh, just our climate and how we distill our whiskeys at about three years of age. And this project, we were planning to release it last year when they were turning four years. Um, however, COVID hit and you know the wheels kind of fell off the industry and we regrouped and and just decided to launch it this year and they're just uh they're all pretty superb and and really happy with the way they turned out that's great and more, for more intro i mean you you're distilling regularly what do you distill from usually and and how is that process different from distilling from beer sure so uh and people tend to get confused on this but the typically we distill on the whole grain so we will you know, grind the grains, uh, we'll cook them, um, and then we don't water them. So they go into the dis- into the fermenter, sort of a soupy porridge, and the yeast is added, and we ferment on the grain. Uh, and then that whole uh, wash is pumped, or distiller's beer is pumped into a still, and we distill that versus... Um, you know, much scotch is made that it's watered and it's a thin sugary liquid that's, you know, fermented from the grains. And then that's uh, distilled as a thin beer, basically. So for typically we distill a soupy porridge. Um, and on this project here, it was essentially a ready to drink beer that we distilled. That's great. So let's go to Jack. So Jack, uh, Jack's Abbey Lager, I remember in 2016, uh, you guys rolled out in New York City, and, and we interviewed your brother Sam. Um, tell us about your backstory. Like, where did you study? Because there's some relation between uh, the beers that you make and distilling beer traditions as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, before Jack's Abbey was opened, I brewed for six years in the Boston area. I also went to brewing school and trained to brew in Germany. And one of the things that's fairly common, particularly for many smaller breweries, is to also distill. Um, some distill beer that they've presumably, I don't know if they it's planned or not, but there's certainly plenty of beer schnapps or uh, some of the really interesting are like dry hops, uh, distilled, distilled products. Uh, but there's certainly plenty of like fruited brandies and stuff that smaller farms that have that growing on their properties anyway are um, looking to distill. It's a uh, it's sort of a good relationship between a brewery and a distillery if you can do both. Yeah, that's great, man. I mean, in lagers, well, how did you get? I mean, everyone knows the story, but I've never heard it from you. Uh, why did you focus on lagers at Jack's Abbey? Lagers, well, for me. Lagers are the favorite, my favorite styles of beer to drink. And as the the head owner and uh, co-owner and brewer, uh, it made a lot of sense to basically brew what I wanted to drink. So, you know, that's sort of how that all, that all happened. But, uh, you know, it's funny looking back 10 years now and, and thinking when we opened in 2011, that, that we really thought the, the IPA market was saturated and, we had some serious concerns about uh, where the industry was going as far as styles, and we really wanted to stand out. Um, we certainly were wrong on one aspect, that the IPA thing certainly has not quit in the last 10 years. Um, but on the flip side, we certainly are right that we we differentiate what we're doing at our brewery by continuing to focus on brewing lagers. Great. Let's go to Rich. Rich, um, tell us your background and, and what you're doing at Harpoon Brewing. Um, so my background, so I got into the beer industry uh, right about 2011 as well. In the beginning of the year, 
I um, interned for a little over a year at a brewery that no longer exists on the South Shore of Boston, um, Blue Hills Brewery. Uh, so I interned there for about a year and a half while I was still working full time and uh, at a desk job and realized that was, you know, really what I wanted to pursue. And I had a pretty big passion for it. And um, a couple openings at Harpoon uh, came around and I applied there, got the job, uh, started there in spring of 2012. And I've been there, you know, just a little over nine years now. Um, I started in the cellar, uh, cleaning tanks, dry hopping beers, making sure fermentations were going great, um, running the filtration room, the centrifuge. And, uh, then about three years into my stint at Harpoon, I, uh, got promoted up to the brew house. Um, and I've been there for the last six years. Um, so my, my day to day is, you know, just running, running the brew house. Uh, I have a couple other duties on top of being a brewer with ordering ingredients, uh, making sure all of our miscellaneous stuff is up to date and, uh, some recipe building and recipe archiving. Well, I think I just, the most recent harpoon I had was your winter warmer this winter. Oh yeah. Which, which was really great. It, it's a it's a fan favorite we don't we don't make a ton of it but it all you know it all goes out there and gets sold out and drank yeah <laughs> so the, the process of picking these beers so chris back back to you with this project um i know you had how many different breweries did you make whiskey from there are 12 in this project all from the northeast and then when you were with uh harpoon and jack's abbey what was your process of selecting their beers? Because they both have so many good beers. I mean, what are you looking for when you're distilling beer? Were you looking for certain flavors? Um, does color come through when you distill? So the uh, no, the the distillate is always crystal clear for us. the um, The process in choosing the beers was sort of multifactorial. We, you know, there's a component of brand recognition. So part of this is a wonderful collaboration between the brewer and the distiller. And um, it's nice to feature a flagship beer if that beer makes sense. So for us, um, there are other components like the ABV of the beer. So if you're having to move a whole lot of beer that's only 3% alcohol, you know, you have to move three times as much beer to the distillery as if you had a higher ABV beer. Um and then one of the things that we found throughout the years with distilling beer is that the hops can tend to come over uh, and add a bittering component to the beer. So we, we're just careful on the IBUs on the beer that we choose. Um, and then we also wanted a variety in, in the project. I mean, one of the really great things about this project is that each whiskey carries over or or has the genetic code of the beer from whence it came. So you can taste the UFO white and the orange peel is like blatant in that. People keep asking us, are you putting orange in this? And the, uh, <laughs> it's funny because the smoking dagger, I, I made the mistake. At least I tasted it first. We just, that, that, that one just got bottled this week. And it is, the nose is sort of more traditional whiskey nose on it. But um, the palate, which I don't pick up so much in the nose, is pure chocolate and coffee. It's just crazy. So. Um, these things come over into the whiskey and, and you know, now we're going to be releasing this year uh, 12 whiskeys that are all very unique. Yeah. So, Chris, what, why did you pick the the black lager from Jack's Abbey instead of any of their other great lagers? Yeah. So I think, uh, again, we wanted to have sort of a smorgasbord of beers that we were distilling and we um, – Jack, do you recall, I think it was four beers that we picked to, to test distill. Um, and we went through them and, and a couple of the lighter ones um, and then ended up, we did uh, test distillations in a small still. And this one just had really nice aromas um, that came over on it. And that's, that's how we picked this one. We did that with all the breweries. We picked a few different beers to distill sort of a, a range of beers from them and then picked one that we 
Not what age. I remember three. I, I I believe you that it's four. I'm not sure what the fourth one, but I believe it was Smoke and Dagger, uh, Red Tape, and House Logger were at least three of the four that, that we tried. But again, it's already like six years later. It's tough to remember <laughs> the ones that we didn't, didn't pick. Well, I'll, I'll believe you it was three because I had 12 of these guys with a bunch each. So, um, and I, you know, I'm a huge fan of the house lager and uh, it's just the distillate lid of, of the smoke and dagger kind of spoke to us, but it was great. I mean, that's, that's part of the process. We did it with all the brewers and we picked out beers and brought them home and uh, to the distillery and distilled them. And then, um, you know, brought one, went back to the breweries and tasted them with the group there and uh, picked ones that seemed to make the best whiskeys and also that had some brand recognition in it. Wow. And what size batches were you making for these test test runs? Oh, the test runs went on uh, a little 10-gallon uh, copper still that actually translates pretty well, um, amazingly, into the bigger batches that were done on a 800-gallon still. Wow. Hey, what? let's talk more about you, Chris. When did you make your first still? Ah, so... Uh, 15 years ago, but in eighth grade, I was, uh, there's a, a book series on homesteading called the Foxfire series. And there's a chapter on making moonshine stills. And in eighth grade, I convinced my mother to allow me to make a moonshine still for my eighth grade science project. <laughs> Think, thinking I would be the coolest kid in eighth grade. And then she found out it was a federal offense and put the kibosh on the project. So, uh, it was sort of smoldering within me, um, and then 15 years ago, I bought a still in Kentucky that was dismantled, and it was a old brown foreman test still that had never really been used much and trucked it up and uh, designed and built a column system with some folks uh, at Vendome in Kentucky. Um, so about 15 years ago, we've been distilling. Yeah. And you were talking about d different kind of beers that are distilled. I remember having a conversation with some some Scots many years ago and they were talking about they said that they blamed the success of the scotch industry for their bad beer now i'm not saying their beer is bad but i guess they were saying that they turned out so much beer to make into whiskey that that's what their priority was does is that make sense or is that true uh, I don't know if that's true, but I, I suppose if if you know all of the good beer was being usurped to to make whiskey, um, I could see I could see that happening. Uh, and it's you know basically that's all we're distilling is is beer, um, distillers beer. So it's the same process. The difference you know for the, for Scotch, uh, especially the the smoked and peated stuff is uh, sort of the substitute in the beer is the hops. But you drink a, a scotch that's really smoky and peaty and tastes like iodine, and um, that comes over in the distillate and carries through the whole aging process, much like the hops does on a beer that we distill. Yeah. Now, going back like six years ago, what, what were conversations that, you, if you can remember, Jack, uh, you, you, they distilled at least three of your beers. What were some, some of that process or conversations, or, or was it you can't remember? Well, I, I specifically was very interested in the smoke and dagger because I am not a huge fan of scotch, but I am a huge fan of Rauch beer. And I was curious what the smokiness from a beer like smoke and dagger would and how that would end up in, in the final whiskey. Now, I haven't tried it, so I'm not sure if any of that smokiness actually carried over or not. Um, but that was for me was sort of like, why don't we try to make a smoky whiskey that I would want to drink as opposed to a, a peaty sort of flavor. So uh, I'm definitely curious and, and interested to see if any of that characteristic came through. It, it did. And I think you'll be safe with this one. So um, <clears throat> yeah, it's really a, a really crazy uh, whiskey. Uh, and I think the neat thing about the distillation process is when you ferment, whether it's something for a wine or a beer or a spirit, uh, the, you know, the yeast goes to town and eats the sugars and it creates ethanol, but all these other alcohols that in the distilling world we call congeners. So you have amyl alcohol and butyl alcohol and you've got aldehydes and fusel oils and all these things that are produced sort of according to the yeast strain and the raw material and the fermentation temperature. Um, 
And when you're drinking a wine or a beer, all those compounds are, are in that wine or beer, but all those compounds have their own volatilities. So through the distillation process, we're able to separate out many of those compounds and make you know what we call cuts and get rid of some of the heads, the first part and the tails, the last part to come over. Um, and we can sort of tailor the whiskey according to the taste profile that we'd like. Um, and also, you know, any of those errors that are not errors, but any of those compounds in a beer, um, there's a compounding or a magnification of those in a whiskey that may be really palatable in the beer. But if you left too much of the heads on in the whiskey, uh, it may give you a bad taste. Yeah. So why do you focus on low IBU beers? What does too many hops do when you distill them? Um, I think it's like, drinking a head crusher IPA. It's just a bit overwhelming. So there's a bitterness to it and it just sort of uh, hangs on the palate too long. And we we grow um, hops on my farm here and we've done a lot of distillation with pure hops. And even, you know, eight years into the barrel, uh, we have some of them that are eight years old and they're just much too hoppy and um, they really just uh, just hang too much on your palate. So you're not going to make an American Fernet with hops or something <laughs> i want to i, I want to do um the american version of a green chartreuse with botanicals from the berkshires but not just hops i think so that's a nice one and then rich um so you guys at harpoon the, the process of how did ufo get picked to be the beer for this project and other anecdotes about it because it's pretty cool yeah, um, I uh, to be honest, I was not really part of the uh, <clears throat> process in choosing which beer that we that we were going to send over to Chris. Um, I know we had tested a few different ones. Uh, I think IPA might have been one of them, but that was too hoppy, uh, too many IBUs in there. Um, and the, I, I believe that they had ended up coming out with the UFO White because of the uh, coriander and the fruit aspect of it to see if that was going to come through with the final product. Um, that beer is also very low in IBUs already. And I remember for the brew day, we actually cut out all the hops in that specific brew. So there was essentially no IBUs in it. Uh, we ended up blending it with another batch later to make up for it for, you know, on, or no, they, we sent most of that over to him. Um, so maybe we didn't blend it, but that that's as far as I know is why we chose UFO white. Um, Chris might be able to dive a little deeper into that part. Yeah, no, I think that's about it. It was a great day. We actually drove, uh, I took my crew and we drove out and started at Mass Bay and went up into the bar and tasted through the beers. And then uh, after, you know, 12 hours up there, went to Jack's Abbey and did the same thing there. And we just went through a set, and, and the, you're right. The UFO had had that beautiful orange to it, and we, I mean, to me, it's much akin to distilling a gin, except for that the orange is in the beer already, versus adding the botanicals, you know, including orange peel to a base distillate. But essentially, the orange from the UFO carries over into the whiskey, just like an orange peel and a gin would carry over into the gin. Um, yeah. So that's why we chose that one. And then, Chris, just some basics like logistics and licensing. Um, are you able to, to get beer from any brewery in any state and then distill it and sell it? How, just walk us through how that works, because it seems like you have mostly Massachusetts breweries. Where do you use license? I think I've heard that word before. <laughs> license. Um, <laughs> so there's actually a uh, small fee uh, tax, I believe it is, that you have to register for beers that are coming from out of state. The beers in state are very easy for us to, to transport and purchase. And the ones out of state, it's, it's a really nominal um, piece of paperwork that you have to fill out. So it's really more the logistics of, you know, moving that volume of beer back and forth so that i mean we did oh lord i would say five thousand gallons of each of these probably um so it's a lot of weight to move and uh you know it's an exciting day when this stuff comes in and it's cold and frosty and um looks palatable one of the things that i did figure out early on was to we actually stopped 
uh, when we could, having the beers carbonated so they come to us without the carbonation in it and a little bit lower temp. Um, Just try and bleed that out. The more times it's run through a pump and stuff, it blows off that CO2, which the CO2 in the distillation process uh, adds a lot of time to it, makes it difficult. Wow, that's totally fascinating. Jack, do you you have any questions for for Chris about the process? Specific to to our beer, um, I you know we we certainly talked about it when when we did it a, a few years ago. So I don't think I have any specific questions about um, the the distillation process. It was it was fun getting the trucks coming to the brewery because a huge tanker would come up and we have to figure out how to run a hose all the way to the outside of the building and and get it filled up. So that was quite the. Uh, Quite the brewers. The brewers were a little surprised when I was like, "Okay, we're gonna have to run a 200 feet of hose and get out to this tanker truck so that this beer can get out for distillation." That's pretty cool, and and you must be proud, right? I mean, you 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 studied in Germany and and you're inspired by the, that beer culture. Um, I don't know. Have you had any of the the ones that I mentioned, like Schlenkler or Origa, Some of these fine distilled beer spirits i've certainly had the beers i've had um i have not had the schlank i didn't know schlankola was doing distillation but the urga i have had that one um but i uh when i'm in germany usually um trying to make sure i try every beer that i have when i'm over there i generally um just so i can stay awake, avoid too much of the <laughs> distilled stuff. Yeah. And what about service? Who wants to talk about that? I, I always thought, I think years ago at my old pub, Jimmy's number 43, if I could have chosen and not just sold what people wanted, I thought, well, I'm just going to have a beer and a shot or a beer and a, a small glass of, of whiskeys. And I'm not going to do any cocktails. Is anybody serving like that, their beer with the same distilled spirit next to it, Chris? So we have, um, we have a bevy of restaurants on board for that. Uh, the whole COVID thing threw a wrench in the works. And the, uh, I mean, the wonderful thing about drinking one of these beers with a glass of the whiskey next to it is that, you know, you can really tell that the genetics have passed through the whiskey. So it's a really great, uh, for a science experiment on it. Um, and we do have a bunch of events sort of on hold, just waiting for the uh, on-premise or the restaurant world to open back up after the uh, pandemic here. But um, yeah, it should be, should be fun. Yeah. I saw a packaging you had, it was of the Spencer Trappist ale with, with the Spencer uh, Trappist ale, American whiskey side by side. I don't know if that was just a post, but I would definitely want, want to taste them together. Yeah, I mean, one of the great things about this project is we um, had the brewers give artistic input to the labels. So if you look at the Craft Brewers Whiskey Project website, it's just a great, I mean, it's worthy of a poster, some really great labels there. Um, And so the the brewers kind of had some sense of ownership in the project too, and, and hopefully it seems like things are loosening up in the COVID front on the COVID front and hopefully we'll be able to get out into the on-premise world and, and do some tastings and events side by side. Yeah. Hey, we're, we're going to take a short break before we do that. I'm going to, um, we have a new thing. I'm reading a, a weekly beer haiku. There's a haiku writer, Matt Kerr. He's at awkward haiku. And this is the beer haiku of the week. This beer I'm drinking, it's dark malt smell of walnuts a fine nut brown ale. Thanks, Matt. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. This episode is brought to you by Garden Cult, garden design and coaching. Carmen DeVito is a professional garden designer, certified New York State landscape professional, and the founder of Garden Cult. You may also know her from HRN's home gardening videos and our series, We Dig Plants. Garden Cult is a culmination of Carmen's more than two decades of experience designing and building gardens in New York City. 
Carmen believes that gardens and outdoor spaces should be healthy, environmentally sustainable places that enhance the health of people, nature, and the planet. She knows how to help you maximize the space you've got, help you work with and make the most of the materials, plants, and trees that you already have, and create an outdoor place to use and enjoy for you and your family. Get started at GardenCult.com. For a 15% discount on virtual garden consultations and coaching sessions, use code HRN15 through September 30th, 2021. That's code HRN15 at GardenCult.com. Hey, hey, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. Check us out and become a member at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Well, we're doing a special show about the Craft Brewers Whiskey Project with Chris and Jack and Rich. Um, So, Chris, you said that whiskey is beer's older cousin. Why is that? You know, the... um... The whiskey has there's a there's an heiress, a bullet bourbon heiress who has a line something to the effect of bourbon's the only thing Americans have to wait for. So, you know, once you distill a beer uh, and to make a whiskey from it, it really needs years in the barrel. It needs to to benefit from that aging process, um, and so it just it uh, takes it takes a bit of time and a bit of age. I actually have a question if I, if I if I could ask it. I have a, I'm curious if, because beers, you know, you talked about how you normally distilling this product that has all this grain in it. I would tend to think from a brewer's perspective that the, the flavor of that fermentation is, um, there's a lot going on where, where the beer that you're getting from brewers, you're probably getting a fairly clean fermentation. Does that change how much time that needs to be? Uh, to age it? Good question, Jack. I don't think it, I don't think it, yeah, I'm not sure it changes how much time it needs to age it as much as, you know, I think um, for the whiskeys, uh, the lore is that, you know, at least the Kentucky lore is that distilling on the whole grain adds a little bit more character to it. Um, and granted, a lot of the stuff that we distill is a corn-based component to it. Um Whereas with the beers, you guys are using, you know, different malts and stuff that add add a flavor of their own to it. So um, I don't think it really changes the aging process, or, or not that I've noticed. I should say. That's good, um, Rich. You have a question for for Chris about this project? Yeah, I don't. I don't think we covered this, but how did you decide on the the twelve breweries that you you ended up going with um, for the, all the releases? Okay, so um, UFO White, Spencer, and then Big Elm 413 were the first three that came out. Um, Sam Adams, who I've done some stuff with before, Jack's Abbey, Berkshire Brewing, Smutty Nose, Oma Gang, Captain Lawrence, Long Trail, Chatham, and Two Roads. And for one reason or another, I seem to have uh, a strong relationship with those brewers, whether I drink a lot of their beers or I know them and drink a bunch of their beers. But um, again, it was a Northeast based uh, pick of brewers that I respected and, and loved the beers of. And, um, you know, there's certainly, I spent some time on the West coast. I would have loved to have thrown in a few West coast beers just to round it out, but it's tough to tough to truck beer from the West coast. But so you know, basically all these brewers um, we had a had an interest in for one reason or another, and, and obviously think uh, they're doing a great job in the beer world. Neat. Wow, that's crazy. So Chris, do you have the 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 whiskeys in front of you right now? Of course, I do. So tell us what you note. What's noteworthy of them? So you have both the Jack's Abbey and the Harpoon, right? Correct. So I, I think, as I mentioned briefly before. Um, the harpoon again is you know these are very clean controlled fermentations we're much more down and dirty i mean we're a week sometimes less our rum fermentations maybe a few days um we let our temperatures get up into the high 80s so it's a very different world than than the beer um but for, for the ufo the uh as i said it's sort of akin to a gin in that the botanicals in the beer distill over and are caught in the distillate and 
make it through the aging process. So that, that orange is really prominent even after five years in a barrel and all the things that a barrel does to a whiskey. So um, it, it's got a smooth, like mildly sweet uh, malt component to it. But for me, it's the thing that I find on that is it's really the orange on it that sticks out to me. Um, just a very drinkable whiskey. The, as I mentioned, the um, <clears throat> the Smoke and Dagger one has um, sort of more of a classic whiskey nose to it, not as aromatic and orangey as the UFO, no orange to it, but more of a whiskey nose when you nose it, but just an overwhelming sense of chocolate um, and coffee and when you drink it. And then does does the smoke come through at all in the in the whiskey? You know, it's it's there. It's not like a, a peated scotch, but it's uh, a smoked peated scotch, but it's definitely there and adds a complexity and a roundness to it, which is neat. So again, you know, this is, these are 12 uniquely different whiskeys. Um, but uh, yeah, a lot, a lot of coffee and chocolate on that one. So how can we get these whiskeys? Well, so the 413 just made it to the distillery, being a smaller um, brewery and just trying to keep up themselves. We didn't get a lot of their beer to distill. The Spencer and the UFO has made it across the state. Not sure how much of it's still around. And then this release here, the um, the next one will be a Sam Adams Boston Lager whiskey, the Smoke and Dagger, and then one from uh, Berkshire Brewing. And those will go out. But they're actually getting released in the distillery this weekend. So we'll keep them at the distillery for the first month. It allows us to sort of educate people to come in about the project. And then they'll end up across the state uh, June 1. They'll be available. Wow. And Jack, I'll, br- I'll bring you some before then. Awesome. I'm looking forward to it. I know. It's pretty pretty, pretty wonderful. Yeah. So, um, Jack, just ask, let's, let's catch up about Jack's Abbey. Um, I know you've got like a, a lemongrass beer out right now. You get so much out of lagers. What's what's coming out now? Well, we're always trying to push the the boundary of of lager beer. Uh, you mentioned Ray Catcher, which is our summer seasonal. That's a, a lager, a rice lager that we brewed with lemongrass. So it's not overly herbal. It's just sort of a nice light lemony character uh, to that to that beer. Um, but usually we're releasing one or two new beers every single every single month. We we've done a few new hoppy lagers, uh, including uh, I think tomorrow we're packaging Nelson Brow, which is a Nelson hopped uh, lager that we do, and we also have a Zwickle. We've never actually brewed the Zwickle before first time, and that'll be coming out in the next next week or two as well. So excited to do sort of pushing both like the American side with the the Nelson hops and then as well as the really traditional side with finding some like really unique and underbrewed traditional styles that really are hard to find these days. Yeah. What's the co-pilot series? Co-pilot is sort of a catch-all for all of our R&D and experimental beers that we do. And generally, those products are only sold at the beer hall. Um, we, we've sort of been in and out of how we do them. We They used to only be draft beers. Obviously, that hasn't worked the last year plus. Uh, so they went to all canned beer. Um, the beer hall is going to be opening up again in about two weeks. Uh, so we are looking to be able to do sort of a more of a mix of, of draft and cans, but again, just for the beer hall. And that, that, that could be um, a beers that were are experimental. Um, they may be proof of concept. They may be, um, it may just be that the beer hall specifically needs uh, a specific style of beer uh, because um, even though it may not be a product that we want to distribute um, the beer, there's a need, uh, for the beer hall. And, and that's sort of where like blood orange came about, where having a very light, refreshing beer for that was in contrast to some of our stronger beers sort of evolved in that, in that pilot R and D setting. Wow. That's great. And then, um, just what is, what has inspired you in recent years, like a German or Czech style, or even a a brewery over there. I'm really interested in a lot of 
when I when I when you talk about Germany and, and Czech Republic and some of the continental loggers, I'm really interested in trying to bring back some of the the processes and some of the more traditional brewing practices that have sort of not really evolved in the U.S. to a lot to many for to the same degree where for. For ale brewing, we're, America is certainly cutting edge, uh, well ahead of the rest of the world. But I, I feel like in many ways that we're just beginning this revolution in lager and really trying to push that forward and uh, start bringing some new ideas, both from th- the raw material side, but also from the actual process side. Wow. And w- what are some of those processes well, you know, a few of them are decoction, brewing, natural carbonation. Um, there's a lot of sort of unique, uh, when you start thinking about really small farmhouse or uh, small town breweries that are still using like open fermentation or are using uh, very old equipment that's still heavily using copper or um Honestly, some a lot of them just have iron in them. I wouldn't recommend that. But uh, <laughs> uh, and then you know things like float tanks and things like uh, uh, utilizing some malts that may maybe not are quite as modified that um, can really work well with some of these other traditional brewing processes. I'll tell you, I remember whenever it was twenty sixteen when when Jack's Abbey came to New York City. Suddenly, all the all the beer guys and beer writers that I knew, I'd see them. They'd be walking around with cans of Jack's Abbey Lager. So you guys have been doing a great job, man. Very nice. Glad to hear that. Thanks. And then, Rich, just tell us about uh, some some new things coming out at Harpoon. Also, the first question is: who, there, There's one brewer that I've interviewed who said he made the first Harpoon IPA many years ago. Do you know who that is? Um. I think it was Russ uh, Hen. I forget his last name. Uh, he was one of the original brewers, and I believe he came up with the uh, Harpoon IPA recipe. Um, I, I can't believe I'm blanking on his name. I've met him a couple times. Um, does that sound right? Yeah, no, I don't. <laughs> were, were you testing me or? <laughs> no, I'm literally blanking. I just remember. Maybe it's been three or four different guys that have said, oh, yeah, he worked on the old Harpoon, the original IPA or right, something. Right, right. Yeah. Um, trying to think when we, that was like, uh, it was, I know it came out as a summer seasonal one year. Um, and then it just, it flew off the shelves. So they, it basically became our flagship almost within a year of uh starting to make that but um as for stuff we're putting out now or you know it's our we're getting hot and heavy on our, our summer seasonals they're they're going to be hitting the shelves fairly soon um so like our our camp Juana mango is what it's called it's our um mango pale ale for the summer um you can get it at fenway when fenway opens back up um our, we just released, did a release second year in a row of our house marg beer. Uh, so it's kind of a play on a margarita, which is pretty cool. Um, so it's got a mix of mixed fermentation of our, our house yeast and um, a little bit of lactobacillus to give it a little bit of that sour tartness. Um, and then we added some oak spirals, lime puree, some agave syrup and sea salt in there, which was... Uh, pretty cool everybody is pretty excited about that i think it's the second year we've made that um and our our ufos are just coming out and our our grapefruit shandies back out this year so we did we just made a batch of that so that's coming soon wow man this is pretty cool chris you, you brought together some some very cool people yeah it was uh as i said it was uh, herding chickens in the beginning but certainly well worth it um so there's yeah there's 12 there um just gonna talk one little science bit on the distillation process. So uh, there were six beers from Massachusetts, the UFO, the Sam Adams, Spencer, the Jack's Abbey, the 413, and the Berkshire Brewing. And they all got triple distilled in a pot still. So pot stills don't fractionate as well as a column still, and you're left with a, a fairly significant volume of heads and tails that you've made cuts on. But when you add up the heads and tails from these six uh, breweries, the beers from them, 
it was a significant volume for us. So we redistilled those a couple times and had a center cut of probably three or four barrels worth that was really pretty nice. So it's an amalgamation of the six beers. And uh, I don't know if everyone remembers this, but everyone signed off on us doing this. And the plan is that uh, after we've released all 12, we'll end up with, you know, a couple thousand bottles of this whiskey that will probably be about six years old from the six of these together. And we'll do a bunch of uh, charitable events with that. So it's kind of a cool uh, end to the project. Wow. And then you you said that when you're looking right now, you have a couple of the whiskeys in front of you. Um, How's the color? And can you predict what the color will be? you know, five, six years ago. Yeah, I thought I could. Um, but there's, there is some variation in the, in the different whiskeys and I don't really have an answer for that because they all went into the same types of barrels and it could just be that, um, you know, you get, you get these distillers select barrels that they go through and they taste a thousand barrels in a rickhouse and a couple of them taste different or better or age differently. And I don't know, if it was something inherent in the barrels that adds a little bit of color variation, uh, they're all in for almost identical amounts of times, but some of them are a little bit darker than others. And, um, but really all, you know, uh, we try not to release anything prematurely and these are all very respectably colored whiskeys in front of me here. And uh, back to Jack, just a, just a, a Jack's Abbey question. Um, when and why did you start putting hops in loggers and, I just want to hear, I want to hear that story. That's a good one. (laughs) That's from the beginning. We, again, we knew we weren't going to be brewing ales, but we did know that there is certainly a lot of interest in hops at that time when we opened. And I think the biggest, like sort of biggest surprise was um, Kiwi Rising. We did that a few months into operations and that was a double IPL at eight and a half percent using all uh, New Zealand hops, particularly uh, Nelson. And um, that, that, of course, was this weird time where you couldn't get any hops, but for some reason, Nelson you could buy. So <laughs> the, the hop broker was like, here, try this one. We can't sell it. No one will take it. We're like, sure, why not? Uh, and then every, we had a huge success with that brand. And then we called to order more. And they're like, yeah, people figured out that they like this hop, so there aren't any more really great. <laughs> uh, but, you know, from the beginning, one of the things that I, I really like about brewing hoppy lagers is it's sort of a different perspective on the hop where in an IPA, uh, there's those competing flavors with yeast, there's comp- competing flavors often with the malt. Um, with, a, with a golden lager base, you sort of let the hops really shine. So I think it's sort of a, a unique way to get some, some great uh, varietal specific hop aromas and, but still have it light and palatable in the finish. Wow. And then what about for your, your, you know, your colored lagers, you know, you made the, the smoke and dagger or the, the black lager. Um, I don't know. Inspirations for that, for different, you know, are you making a Czech lager that has color, for example? So, yeah, the, the problem with the dark lagers, and we brew a lot of them, is they're they're very challenging to, to sell. So I keep uh, brewing them. So we do a, a Czech dark lager. That's part of our co-pilot series. It, it hasn't actually made it out of the brewery yet. Smoking Dagger for, you know, we're, we're, I feel lucky that we can brew Smoke and Dagger now 10 years in, and it, it's still a, a beer that we brew year round. Um, Framing Hammers are a Baltic Porter series, and we do that se- seasonally. But I just think that there's this huge, uh, there's this huge window of, styles that are sort of missed in the lager conversation everyone a lot of breweries will say we brew a lager and you basically know that they're talking about a pilsner or maybe it's a hellas um but there's sort of this this misconception that lager is just golden and that's just not the case there's so many different styles there's so many different great traditional beers out there and i think it's important to even if we can't necessarily make a huge business out of selling those styles to keep on brewing them and 
be able to have that conversation about what lager is and why it's important that there's all these different styles and characteristics that you can, uh, you can brew. I'll tell you, I'm going to make it to Framingham one day and tr- try all your co-pilots and your, your fun stuff. Uh, Cause you, I'm going to just keep following you, man. Thanks so much, Jack. Um, yeah, absolutely. And then Rich, you guys, again, Harpoon IPA, what, what other beers are at uh, baseball stadiums for you guys? That's a whole nother show, but <laughs> I know, I know at Fenway, I'm pretty sure you can get IPA, UFO white, and then um, the camp one and mango, the mango pale ale. And I think they all come in 16 ounce cans too. So that's pretty cool. Um, but those are the main three beers that you're going to find at any of the ballparks or, uh, you know, down at Gillette and whatnot. Um, yeah. cause those are, our, you know, main beers for summertime drinking for you guys with the, with the range of beers that you have, do you have different systems? Like for example, for the UFO versus IPAs, do you concerned about the hops and the systems or whatever? Well, not really. They all come through the same uh, brewing vessels, I guess you could say, uh, in our in our brew house. They all, you know, go from start to finish, from the mash tun to the louder tun kettle whirlpool. Um, they all go through the same system. Um, you know, it's really just the the change of ingredients from beer to beer, and you know, we can pump if we're running twenty four hours, we can pump through about six and a half to seven beers and. 24 hour period um lately with covid with you know everybody's sales being down and whatnot we're usually only around four a day so um you know we're brewing ipa one day we're brewing ufo white and then we also have um you know our seasonals come through excuse me and then we we also have the clown shoes brand is under the the mass bay brewing uh umbrella so we're we're brewing three to four clown shoes beers a week as well Oh, that's great. I remember when they first started, we, we've tried them. Mm-hmm. And then Chris, um, wow, man, what a great project you have. And you're, what are you, a farmer, chemist, and construction guy, right? Uh, pretty, yeah, good, pretty good amount, amalgamation of those three, sure. Yeah, this is pretty cool. You guys are all Massachusetts, and uh, it's, it's a real great little snapshot into your world. You know, so much of what we've done has been in New York, and um, – Really appreciate you guys coming on. Um, I guess we're just going to sign off, all right? So big thank you, and so Chris, we can check it out at the Craft Brewers Whiskey Project. You're, you're a thank you, Chris from Berkshire Mountain Distillers. Thanks, Jack from Jack Abbey's in Massachusetts, and Rich Iring of uh, Harpoon for joining me here on Heritage Radio Network. Big shout out to our engineer Armin Spingen and producing intern Caroline Fox. I'm Jimmy Carboni. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at Facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.